Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. I always appreciate that introduction, Phil. I should tell my listeners today that there was a little more pressure on him. I told Phil that our guest for episode 12, What Happens in Mediation, Stays in Mediation, right? Mr. Jeff Kachavin recently did a presentation with the Houston Bar Association, and his introduction was by the mayor of Houston. So Phil felt a little bit of pressure doing our intro today. But Phil, as always, you nailed it. Thanks much. So I'm Steve Showolf, your host. And Today we're recording on uh, MLK Day. I had a LinkedIn post today with a picture of an article in 1999 from a Bulgarian newspaper when I was teaching at a law school in Bulgaria. And I was asked, it was part of a millennial series as we were approaching uh, uh, Y2K, and I was asked as an American who I thought the greatest personality was in the last hundred years. And so I, I said I admired Martin Luther King Jr. I looked back at that article, and one, I couldn't recognize the picture of myself since I don't remember being that young. And the second thing is I unfortunately can't read 100% of the Bulgarian article that I used to be able to uh, over 20 years ago. But what I gather, what I said was that I have always admired his uh, courage and role in the ongoing efforts to uh, improve America by embracing our uh, diversity, something that I uh, very strongly believe is uh, necessary and even more important today. So uh, everybody have a happy Martin Luther King uh, Day. As a practical matter, I feel bad about it because some of the people know my wife is uh, a physician and she deals with COVID every day, but uh, she goes to the office, unlike me, who works from home doing Zoom mediations from uh, my bedroom. And unfortunately, I've got her out in the uh, outside right now, so she doesn't make noise to uh, interfere with the podcast because uh, she she got a well-deserved day off. So uh, I've exchanged, I guess, conversation with my wife, with our guest today, Jeff Kachavin. Jeff is a top mediator by Chambers USA in 2020. He is a Harvard Law graduate with honors. He is a member of the ALI. He is a mediator who is based in L.A. but has a national practice mediating complex commercial matters. He's been quoted in numerous uh, prestigious periodicals and newspapers and is right now doing a national tour called, guess what? Your online mediation might not be confidential. So, Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. I'm very happy to be here and very delighted to be speaking to your listeners. Well, thank you. So I've heard it and probably said it many times that mediation is like Vegas. What happens there stays there. I've even heard some mediators prefer using Fight Club, where the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. So are those, I guess, glib summaries of mediation incorrect? Steve, thanks for that question. I think that those statements are quite an oversimplification of the confidentiality and privilege rules that apply to mediation. The problem arises because you never know where or when the confidentiality of your mediation will be tested. What is said or done in your mediation might become relevant to some later lawsuit anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world, really. 
And when you promise absolute confidentiality, airtight confidentiality to your participants, what you're doing in substance is promising that if the confidentiality of this mediation is ever tested anywhere, at any time, by any court in the world, that court will agree to uphold the confidentiality of your mediation. And there are cases out there in which, because of the way conflict of laws rules apply to evidentiary issues, it doesn't happen. There are cases where courts apply different confidentiality rules, different privilege rules than you expected or intended, and pierce through the confidentiality of a mediation in order to obtain relevant evidence. And if that happens, and if you have previously promised people airtight confidentiality, not only are their expectations disappointed, but there may be liability to whoever promised that absolute confidentiality. First of all, you have put in uh, a great deal of thought on this, and so uh, I appreciate you sharing your insights uh, with me and my listeners here today. Is it fair to say that this is a problem that's potentially exacerbated by our new normal where uh, I think I said I'm doing Zoom mediations, you know, from a bedroom in a house we're renting out. But you're here in L.A. today. I'm in Austin, Texas. So where is this conversation taking place and how does that impact where Zoom mediations should even be considered taking place? Steve, that is a metaphysical question for the philosophers among us. Where does a conversation take place when people are in different states? Where does a mediation take place when you may be in Texas and I'm in California and you may have, in a business-to-business case particularly, people in several different states around the country? So here's the key to the analysis. The Second restatement of conflict of laws provides that a court is supposed to apply the privilege or confidentiality law of the state with the most significant relationship, the most significant relationship to the communications which are at issue. And generally speaking, the state with the most significant relationship is the state where the communications take place. So if everyone is physically present in a conference room in Texas or California or any other particular jurisdiction, that is pretty clearly where the communications took place. But when people are sprinkled all over the country and we are not quite sure where the communications took place in a physical sense, what is a court supposed to do? Well, remember, Steve, a court has an interest in doing justice in the case before it, doing justice for the parties before it in a particular case. And in order to do that, a court wants itself or a jury as appropriate to consider all relevant evidence. And any time a privilege is asserted, it frustrates a court's ability to get all relevant evidence. So if a court has discretion to decide which state's law to apply, it may well decide to apply the law of the state with the least protective privilege or confidentiality rules or statutes with respect to mediation. The law of the state 
whose law will give it the greatest ability to obtain the relevant evidence and have the relevant evidence admitted in evidence. Generally speaking, when those decisions of trial courts are reviewed by appellate courts, they will be reviewed under the standard of abuse of discretion. And under the abuse of discretion standard of review, it will be very difficult to get a trial court's decision reversed. So you can see why the online environment does indeed make it more problematic to grant airtight guarantees of confidentiality to your mediation participants. It's fascinating, and I definitely can relate to situations where, especially in complex commercial matters, where you have attorneys and lawyers, and if you have multiple parties, you've got people, as you said, just sprinkled all across the country. And so it it really makes those decisions uh, less clear if there is a subsequent attack either on a settlement agreement, if there's a motion to enforce a term sheet, or if there's even an argument of an independent tort. Uh, that transpired during uh, the particular um, mediation. Uh, but let's let's move away from the hypothetical a little bit. I I think one of the first cases. So you started to get involved in this. You I think you you saw some cases. It made you think, and then you you called a, a professor friend who had a research assistant and and started coming across different cases. And I think one of the cases uh, that you found uh, a Larson versus Larson's uh, case involved a mediation in Colorado, but a subsequent action that was filed in Wyoming, and it involved whether or not a PowerPoint presentation that was made during a confidential mediation in Colorado, where the parties actually signed an agreement to to mediate that include confidentiality, where the party in Wyoming was able to access that PowerPoint, right? That's, that's exactly right. Larson versus Larson is a Tenth Circuit case from 2017, and it shows that even When you're away from the online environment, even when mediations took place in person in a particular conference room, those airtight promises of confidentiality are very risky when you make them. The Larson case was a trust and estate matter where three siblings were disputing the distribution of assets from their parents' estate. And the lawsuit was pending in the United States District Court in the District of Wyoming, two siblings against the third sibling. They had a mediation, but they didn't conduct the mediation in Wyoming. They went to the next state south, Colorado, and they held the mediation in a conference room in Denver, Colorado. So one would think ordinarily Colorado law would apply because everyone was physically present in Colorado. In addition, the party signed a written uh, confidentiality agreement in which they stated that Colorado confidentiality law would apply to their mediation. And Colorado's law is very protective of the confidentiality of the mediation. They thought they came to an agreement, they signed the term sheet, but then they had disputes in finalizing the documentation. Specifically, the one brother intended that a particular piece of property in their parents' estate was not included within the scope of the settlement agreement. And his two siblings said, oh, yes, this piece of property is included. 
the matter of enforcing the term sheet and finalizing the settlement was heard back up north across the Colorado-Wyoming border in the district court for Wyoming. The magistrate judge in Wyoming was faced with a motion to compel production of Brother Number Three's PowerPoints from the mediation. Brother Number Three's two siblings contended that if you saw the PowerPoint, you would see it was quite clear that our brother intended for this disputed piece of property to be within the scope of the negotiations and the scope of the release. So the magistrate judge in Wyoming noted initially that ordinarily Wyoming courts would honor choice of law agreements such as the Larson siblings had and apply Colorado law. But there's an exclusion in, in Wyoming law for applying the law of another state when to do so would be contrary to the law of public policy or general interests of the citizens of Wyoming. The magistrate judge found, I think remarkably, that the exception applied and ordered the production of the PowerPoint. Now, what makes it so exceptional is that this is about as purely private a dispute as you can imagine. It's family members fighting over the distribution of assets in a family estate. It's hard to find any public policy or general public interest considerations here. Nonetheless, the magistrate judge found some and ordered Brother Number 3 to produce his PowerPoint. That decision was appealed to the Tenth Circuit, and the Tenth Circuit, reviewing under the abuse of discretion standard, affirmed the magistrate judge's decision, and Brother Number 3 had to produce his PowerPoint. So if this can happen in an in-person mediation, as we were discussing a few minutes ago, in an online mediation, when you can't even tell as clearly where the communications took place, the risk is even greater that a judge will disregard the law you intended to apply. Well, that's fascinating, Jeff. Now, you know, you and I um, have never met in, in the real world. Um, and, uh, I think we met by seeing each other's LinkedIn posts over the, the course of the last year. And I can tell you in the last year, as we all have been limited, uh, in our ability to do face-to-face networking, I've done more on LinkedIn. I did a, a podcast episode with Sherry Bellitz, uh, who's from New York. And so I have a lot of people from New York who I comment on mediation issues and other issues. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I know New Yorkers, they might roll their eyes and say, well, I, you know, I'm not real sure some one-off case from the Tenth Circuit, uh, you know, from Wyoming really matters. So what, uh, what are we seeing in a jurisdiction like New York? In New York, Steve, the exact same thing could happen. And there, the most interesting recent case is called Pricewaterhouse, uh, State of New York versus Pricewaterhouse Coopers, which was part of the New York Attorney General's climate change litigation against ExxonMobil and others. And the Attorney General of New York subpoenaed Exxon's accountant client files with um, PricewaterhouseCoopers, its accounting firm. And most of those communications took place in the state of Texas, where Exxon is headquartered. So in that case, 
a New York court looked at it and said, well, Texas has an accountant's client's privilege. New York does not have an accountant's client's privilege. Nonetheless, we are going to disregard the party's expectations that Texas law would apply to their communications. We're going to apply the territoriality test the test of the first restatement of conflict of laws, not the test of the second restatement of conflict of laws, and order uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers to produce its documents relating to its relationship with Exxon, even though under the Texas accountant client's privilege, most if not all of those documents would have been shielded from discovery. So in New York, these... Uh, there is a line of cases. There is a line of cases that uses this territoriality test. When the first restatement was published in 1934, first restatement of conflict of laws, the territoriality test was the test that applied to these kinds of situations. And under the territoriality test, the court is supposed to apply the law of its own forum state, the state where the production of the evidence is sought or the introduction in, in evidence is sought. And as you might imagine, this rule was widely criticized. It leads to a lack of predictability. It leads to forum shopping and all the rest. So when the secondary statement came out in 1971, the territoriality test was replaced with the most significant relationship test. But there are still some courts, Steve, not only in New York, but elsewhere around the country that still adhere to the test of the first restatement. And even though the, the preponderance of New York cases since 1971 does apply the second restatement most significant relationship test, there still is a robust line of cases in New York that applies the territoriality test. So just as a court in Wyoming disregarded the uh, agreement to the parties, the expectation of the parties. It could happen in New York just as easily. That brings me back a, a, a little bit. When you mentioned the PwC, the New York versus PwC uh, case, uh, I spent... I think literally over a decade of my life litigating an insurance coverage matter in Indiana over at the end of the Clinton administration when they tried to argue that uh, certain coal-fired utility plants had violated uh, the Clean Air Act. And that was considered one of the, the earlier uh, cases that impacted uh, global warming. But I can tell you this, as somebody, I think you and I both litigated first uh, before becoming full-time mediators. So I, I litigated for 25 years. But I can tell you that um, having access to documents that are arguably protected by an accountant privilege are extremely important to the merits and pass the relevance test. So it, these documents are hotly contested documents and vary from jurisdiction uh, to jurisdiction. And so I think when you had, I think you said earlier, you talked about how some states might just at the end of the day, err on the side of getting to the truth. Once you get conflict of laws and once you get potential forum shopping, I think it's very difficult to predict with certainty uh, what's going to happen to whether it's a, a privilege like an accountant or an attorney-client privilege or whether it's a notion of confidentiality. That's right, Steve. And 
in the vast majority of cases, nothing will go wrong. In the vast majority of cases, if you promise people confidentiality or they expect confidentiality under the statute or their local jurisdiction, in the vast majority of cases, nothing will go wrong. But as mediation becomes more popular and more ubiquitous in our system of administration of justice, it will happen again, just as it happened to Charles Larson in uh, his case in Wyoming. Give it enough time and it will happen again. And when it happens to someone again, there will be questions of liability. Why did the professional make that promise of airtight confidentiality when that professional, be it a mediator or a lawyer, did not have the power to enforce that promise? And if it is sensitive business information that ends up being disclosed in a later judicial proceeding somewhere, well, the liability could be severe. So the question comes up, what sorts of representations or promises should mediators or lawyers make to mediation participants about the extent of confidentiality that applies? Well, and what really we've we talked a little bit about this, uh, you know, off air. But to me, I think that from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, you know, mediators are going to be presented with how how you deal with this. And I think I told you from my perspective, it gets interesting in that. I'm a born and raised Chicagoan. I've uh, now I'm I'm in my second year here in uh, in Austin. Uh, so I'm a member of both the Illinois and the Texas bar. And uh, Texas, I think, relative to other states, was on the forefront of mediation back in the 80s and 90s. They promote mediation. They promulgated ethical guidelines for mediators. Now, when the Supreme Court approved these guidelines. Um, they said that they're aspirational. The TMCA asks you to adhere to the ethical guidelines um, so that by agreement, they're no longer aspirational. So one thing that you and I have talked about that I think is is interesting is, is one of the guidelines for a mediator is a mediator should inform and discuss with the participants the rules and procedures pertaining to the mediation process. Now that's the rule, and then there's comments. So I guess you can argue maybe the comments to the rule, you know, aren't binding. But comment B to uh, this rule um, says at a minimum, the mediator should inform the parties of the following: one, the mediation is private; two, the mediation is informal. And three, the mediation is confidential to the extent provided by law. So I look at that and say, I guess if it's a TMCA mediation, I have agreed that I am going to inform participants about the fact that the mediation is confidential. And so I know your conclusion, and it's well thought out, is you don't have an agreement that discusses confidentiality. And frankly, you don't want to talk confidentiality with the parties because you don't want to make a promise you can't keep. Yes, Steve, that's right. And in the mediations I handle, everybody's represented by lawyers, very competent, sophisticated lawyers. My belief is that it is the responsibility of those lawyers 
to discuss with their clients the rules of confidentiality or privilege which do or do not apply to the mediation, and therefore how candid their clients should and should not be in the mediation. If we as mediators undertake to start explaining confidentiality to people, the reason to do so, I think, is to induce a greater level of candor from those people than they would otherwise have. And if we are inducing people to be more candid than they otherwise would be, and then it comes back to bite them, well, whose responsibility is that? Then there would be potential liability on us. Now, when you are required to tell people that the mediation is confidential to the extent permitted by law, it's sort of a tautology, isn't it? It doesn't really, it doesn't really have much meaning. So I would then ask, well, what if somebody in the mediation says, the extent provided by law, Mr. Scholwolf, what exactly does that mean? And if you try to, to explain, Steve, what exactly that means, then you, you're, you're, I don't even want to go there, you know, because just as the accountant client privilege of Texas was not enforced when it was tested in New York, similarly, the, the rules that you have in Texas to, pro, to protect the confidentiality of mediation, well, they not, may not be enforced in New York either, if you find that confidentiality being tested in a court that favors the territoriality test, because New York has almost no statutory protection for the privilege or confidentiality of mediations. They have a section in their civil practice laws and rules, which is the analog of Federal Rule of Evidence 408. And 408 provides that offers or demands in the negotiation of compromise of a claim are not admissible solely to prove the strength or weakness of the claim being negotiated. And that's a paraphrase, but it's a pretty close paraphrase. So in a sense, it functions like the hearsay ban. The hearsay ban prohibits the introduction of hearsay to prove the truth of the matter asserted. But clever lawyers can figure out a lot of other reasons that they're trying to introduce hearsay evidence, and many times they're allowed to do so. So similarly, under Rule 408 and the New York law, if you try to introduce evidence of what happened uh, in the settlement negotiation, you can generally find a reason other than proving the strength or weakness of the claim being negotiated to do so. Now, do you want to have to explain that to everybody in every Texas mediation? One thing that I have always done is, you know, whether it be in, in a mediation agreement or verbally is, you know, attempt as much as, you know, possible to make it clear that while I'm an attorney, I in no way am acting in my capacity as an attorney for any of the parties. And as you pointed out, you know, I make it abundantly clear that to the extent on any aspect of, of the mediation that they have questions that, you know, they should feel free to and and should consult, you know, their attorneys because nothing that I am saying as is intended to provide, 
legal advice. The other thing is, I think we touched on this, is I don't think a mediator can um, make promises that they can't keep. So I think I gave an earlier example of, you know, if you're in the middle of discussions and somebody asks you, um, if we do this, are they going to do that? I can't tell you that. And I lose credibility if I try to make promises. And I look at, in my mind, um, the the issues that you're raising about confidentiality, um, you know, along the, the the same lines. And so my thought process is I, I have something in, a, you know, a potential agreement saying, you know, I we can't guarantee an outcome, whether there'll be a resolution. I can't guarantee the enforceability of any agreement uh, that has uh, been reached in uh, mediation. And I can't uh, guarantee how a subsequent court in any particular jurisdiction might look at either an agreement or the agreement to mediate, uh, which I think would include confidentiality. Now, I don't know whether that would do enough uh, you know, to, to, to insulate uh, myself, but I sure have looked at uh, you know, different agreements that I looked at when I was an attorney and now as, as, as a mediator with a new light um, because I take very uh, seriously, my, my ethical obligations. And uh, like I said, I, I, I'm, I'll be interested with other TMCA lawyers and, you know, lawyer mediators here in Texas in terms of the recommendation that mediators shouldn't discuss confidentiality when, you know, there is at least arguably this rule that requires you to, uh, you know, to discuss it in, in, you know, in some, uh, some form or fashion. You know, Steve, when clients are represented by lawyers, it may not be that big of an issue because you can all, as a mediator, you can always say that for the ins and outs of the confidentiality statutes and rules that apply to this mediation, please consult with your lawyer. I'm sure your lawyer knows those statutes and rules very well. And it's really up to your lawyer to advise you how candid you should or should not be in the mediation. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's, that is, to me, my number one takeaway in terms of how I can kind of mesh um, the legitimate concerns that you've been raising and kind of how I conduct you know, mediations. As a lawyer, my perception as to what a mediator's role was and what a good mediator did, I think was a little myopic. I dealt with complex cases. And so in my mind, I had sophisticated clients who, um, I think there's a polite way of saying it, who had strong opinions themselves, right? And they weren't wallflowers who I was worried about uh, being steamrolled you know, at, at a mediation. And so my view of mediation was, um, of course, mediation was voluntary and the parties had, you know, made final decisions. As I've become a mediator, I've recognized that the ADR community, probably more than attorneys, are a little bit more concerned about making sure that self-determination of the parties is what's happening at mediations. And uh, I know the ABA, they had a task force that it was very insightful about the different attitudes. Attorneys felt, oh, mediators should make settlement, specific settlement recommendations, where most mediators um, were hesitant to do so because they, they wanted to make sure that mediation is run by the parties. And there, there's this debate between evaluative and, and facilitative uh, mediation. So 
One thing that I've incorporated in my practice, and I think this is something I'm going to try to do with the things I've learned from, uh, you know, reading more of your work and talking more to you, is when I have a pre-mediation call, and I recommend most mediators try to do that if the parties are willing to, to do that, one thing is I go over my standard agreement and I try to cater it to the particular matter. But one thing that I do is I go over it and I say, look, I'm flexible, somewhat jokingly, but not really almost everything in here except my rate, right? Right? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, the, the rate hopefully we've agreed to. But on the other things, I want to talk to make sure that everybody has an understanding up front about the type of mediation. And so I will say that I am the type of mediator in a complex case in which everybody's represented, who I'm not necessarily saying I'm going to do evaluative but I am going to use some analytical techniques where I ask questions to hopefully have the parties and their attorneys really fully consider the strengths and weaknesses of their case so that if they ultimately make a decision to walk away from the bargaining table, it's because they've thought it through. And so I have some language where they agree that I you know, can engage in that type of analytical techniques. And if somebody were to say, no, I just want you to be completely facilitative and go back and forth, then I'll cross that out. But I, um, I have made it my practice of, of trying to address that on a pre-mediation call. And because, frankly, of some of the issues that you've raised, I think at least on confidentiality, I am going to make it a part of my routine to tell represented clients that, that even if they're agreeing in a private document that this mediation should be confidential, that they need to talk to their lawyers about what that means in all the different potential permutations of potential ancillary litigation down the road, and that I'm not providing any advice or guaranteeing any results on that. Your practice isn't to talk about confidentiality. I don't know whether you ever uh, talk to parties about what their expectations are on facilitative or evaluative, or or whether you have any comments on that. the question of facilitative and evaluative mediation is a complex and interesting subject. And as the years have gone on, I believe more and more that there is no such thing as mediation without some degree of evaluation in it. Let me contrast what we all do in mediation to a kind of communication which is bereft of evaluation. And I am familiar really with only one form of communication, if you can call it that, which is bereft of evaluation, and I would call that Freudian psychoanalysis. So Freud, in his theory of psychoanalysis, did not want to have an influence on what his patients were saying in the evaluative uh, process. So how did Freud set up his environment so that he would not give his patients evaluative input? Well, we all have that stereotyped image in mind of the patient laying down on a couch or cot or sofa, and Dr. Freud with his monocle uh, facing away from the patient so that he can't see the patient and the patient can't see him. And Freud sits completely silently while the patient speaks what's on their mind in that sort of process. Steve, I don't think there is a single strict Freudian mediator 
in the country, if not the world. Could you imagine being in a mediation and saying, well, I don't want to give a valuative input, so as a result, I have to keep my back turned to everybody and not say a word. Because even my facial expressions, even my body language, my gestures, even the way I breathe, the way I might sigh or harumph at something, provides a valuative input to the people with whom I am communicating. There's not a mediator in the world who does that. So we are always evaluating, and there are things that I believe are even beyond our control by which we are communicating our evaluations to the people with whom we're talking. So the question is, can we evaluate in ways that are constructive, that are helpful, that help the parties make good decisions? I guess the point I was making at is I make it a, at least a practice to explicitly tell people in advance, hey, look, I, I unless you tell me you don't agree to this type of procedure, and then maybe we should talk about whether I'm the right mediator, because nobody, frankly, has told me not to. But I like to upfront say I'm not the type of mediator who is going to pound the table and say, oh, you have to do X, but I am going to be asking you questions to make sure you've evaluated uh, whether it's in your interest not to do X. Whatever works for you. Whatever works uh, for us as mediation professionals and, frankly, what works for our clients and what they're looking for in a particular uh, you know, matter. Talked a lot about hypotheticals, and um, I remember you referencing a, an explicit example of something I'd like you to at least have the opportunity uh, to talk about. And, and you make the point of if a, me a mediator potentially could be uh, exposed to liability if a agreement to mediation form requires the parties to accept a confidentiality provision that, frankly, is really asking them to waive substantive rights uh, without them thinking through it and having the advice of counsel. And I think you talk about... Uh, I always say Winklevi because I remember, uh, you know, the movie Social Network. But uh, yeah, the dispute between Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, I, I forgot when that movie came out. Uh, it was a few years back. And frankly, when it came out, frankly, all of his quirks and stuff seemed a little bit cuter maybe than it is today if I went back and watched the movie. But I, I, I remember enjoying the movie. It's a Sorkin uh, uh, screenplay. But, you know, Zuckerberg and uh, the the Winklevoss twins had had litigation. And, and, and you use one of those uh, cases in terms of how a confidentiality agreement came back to bite the twins a, a, a little bit as, as an example of you know, what can happen if a party agrees to a confidentiality agreement that that they might lose substantive rights down the road, and that's something as a mediator and, frankly, as an attorney, we should be concerned about. That's right, Steve. And for the Winklevoss twins, the confidentiality agreement they signed with Mark Zuckerberg, the mediation confidentiality agreement, might have cost them several million dollars. Uh, maybe to the Winklevoss twins, that's the little bits that you referenced. Most people, it's a lot of money. So here's what happened in that case, and it's called Facebook versus Connect You, and it's a Ninth Circuit decision written by Judge Kaczynski from 2011, I believe. And this is the case, one of the cases that 
reported on the uh, the disputes, which were part of that terrific movie, The Social Network. You recall that the Winklevoss twins claimed that Zuckerberg defrauded them when Zuckerberg acquired the Winklevoss twins' Facebook shares from them. So there was litigation, and they had a mediation. At the beginning of the mediation, the party signed one of these airtight mediation confidentiality agreements. Nothing said or done in this mediation can ever be introduced in evidence ever against anybody at any point in time in the history of the universe. You know, this kind of airtight universal confidentiality agreement. Well, they signed the settlement agreement, and then the Winklevoss twins claimed that Zuckerberg had defrauded them again in the settlement discussions at the mediation. So they sought to rescind this mediated settlement agreement, and they tried to introduce in evidence what Zuckerberg and his team had said during the mediation as evidence of the alleged fraud. Ultimately, they were not allowed to introduce that evidence, and Zuckerberg uh, succeeded in enforcing the settlement agreement. And in that opinion, Judge Kaczynski said to the Ninth Circuit that under ordinary circumstances, under Rule 408 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, which apply to this mediation, you would be able to use evidence of what happened at the mediation not to prove the strength or weakness of the claim being asserted and negotiated, but rather for this collateral purpose, to prove a contract-based defense to the enforcement of the mediated settlement agreement, here fraud. Congress intended you to have that right. Congress intended you, under Rule 408, to be able to use evidence of what happens in settlement negotiations to uh, to assert contract-based defenses to the enforcement of, of settlement agreements. But, Judge Kaczynski wrote, since the parties had signed this confidentiality agreement, he was going to, the Ninth Circuit was going to hold people to their words and prohibit the Winklevoss twins from introducing evidence of Zuckerberg's alleged fraud. So, it's a curious situation. Contrast what happened in the Facebook versus Connect U case, what happened in Larson versus Larson. In Larson versus Larson, people signed the settlement agreement. It was not enforced, and it caused problems. In the Facebook versus Connect U case, people signed the settlement agreement. It was enforced, and it caused problems. So what are you supposed to do? For example, if you think you're going into a mediation at an information disadvantage, and if you think that you're a little concerned about someone not telling the truth or omitting something or having superior information than you do and maybe exploiting that, well, query, do you want to waive your ability to use evidence of what happened at the mediation to assert a contract-based defense to the enforcement of a mediated settlement agreement if you should later find out that there was fraud, duress, or mistake. You see, you should not casually sign a mediation confidentiality agreement. You should ask yourself, what rights and obligations do I have in the absence of this agreement? And what rights and obligations do I have if I sign this agreement? And is that what I want? So... I'm not against mediation confidentiality agreements per se. 
What I'm against is people signing these boilerplate documents without giving any consideration to whether they do not enough, enough, or too much in terms of mediation confidentiality. One reason people might want to sign confidentiality agreements is, for example, if they're concerned about people leaving the mediation and talking to the press about what happened at the mediation. Because that is a kind of confidentiality that is generally is not covered by evidence codes. Evidence codes regard, relate to the admissibility of matters in evidence in formal litigation proceedings. But the evidence code, generally speaking, does not govern whether you can leave a mediation and go tell your neighbor or a bartender or a reporter. So you may want that. You have to approach it thoughtfully, not reflexively. That's really the key takeaway. And and I think uh, that that that's such an important tip, um, particularly for the the lawyers out there. Um, in that, you know, preparing for a mediation isn't just um, making sure you've gone back and looked at the law and the facts of your particular case. You you really need to take a step back and think about how this mediation potentially could be used down the road. Um, which jurisdictions um, might. Um, ultimately be a forum and what's their views on confidentiality and, and frankly, some of these other, you know, privileges. Fair enough. So, you know, one thing, I, I guess I'm going to come full circle because I feel bad. My wife has been banished in the backyard here so uh, on her day off. So I, I appreciate all of your time. You know, one last thing that, you know, I, I would say for anybody, uh, you know, here in Texas, a case that was highlighted, I did my mediation training in Illinois. And then when I came to Texas, Texas requires uh, you to uh, take a, a supplemental uh, course. And they talk about the case Allen versus Leal. And Allen versus Leal was a uh, section 1983 uh, case where a police officer uh, uh, shot the plaintiff's uh, son. The case settled at mediation. And uh, afterwards, the the, the plaintiff's uh had second thoughts and they wanted to, to back out. And they alleged that the mediator bullied them to accept uh, the settlement. So the Southern District of uh, Texas chastised the president of the AAM, uh, the Association of Attorney Mediators, um, for publicly saying, uh, quote, what some people might consider a little bullying is really just part of how mediation works. And the case there talked about like 40 times the mediator apparently told the plaintiffs that they, they would go bankrupt and uh, be financially ruined if they continued to, uh, the, the, the case. And so the court clearly admonished that type of attitude, you know, and that a mediator is not a bully. But talking about um, how important Texas views the finality of settlements and preserving uh, the confidentiality of mediation, the court ultimately said that it was gravely concerned with the plaintiff's frontal attack on the mediation process itself. The mediation process has been responsible for the resolution of countless cases in this district, thereby avoiding the, nece the necessity for expensive adversary proceedings, including jury and non-jury trials. A significant amount of time and energy has been expended by the court and the parties in this case as a result of the plaintiff's action. The conduct of the plaintiffs and their attorneys in attempting to upset a settlement of this case appears to constitute an abuse, even if unintentional, of the federal trial court process. And I guess all I'm suggesting, that's not necessarily 
necessarily uh, a universal way of looking at things, but those are the type of cases that I would suggest if you're going into mediation and you're an attorney and you're considering recommending whether things be confidential or not, you at least do a little research, not just in the background of your case, but in the background of the jurisdiction and how it might look at confidentiality so that when you're advising your client uh, about whether it should sign uh, uh, the agreements, uh, you're doing so uh, consistent with your ethical obligation. So that was just uh, my take on, you know, having uh, talked with you, Jeff, having read your stuff, viewing presentations. I, I think this is a very thought-provoking topic. I think most people intuitively hear mediation and assume, as in Vegas, what happens there stays there. But I think you've demonstrated uh, throughout your tour uh, that that's not something that people should take for granted. Uh, And we have ethical obligations to make sure our clients fully understand what their options and rights are. And for that, I very much appreciate your time and helping educate my listeners about all of that. Steve, thank you so much. You're a great interviewer, and it's a great honor to be on your podcast. Let me just add one more thing, please, that if anybody has a question, I believe they deserve an answer. They can email me. My email is my initials, jk at my name, jeffkitchhaven.com. My cell phone number is 310-721-5785. And if anybody has a question, they deserve an answer. I'm happy to talk to them. Well, that that's great. Likewise for me, I'm at Steve at showwolfmediation.com. Uh, my website at showwolfmediation.com. Uh, Please check out past episodes of this uh, podcast, Opening Doors Resolution, a mediation podcast. I'm your host, Steve Showwolf. It was a pleasure talking with you here today, Jeff. But for now, we're going to close the door on today's episode. Thanks much. You're welcome. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.